0: Okay, if you have a Bible in front of you, you can turn to First Corinthians. We're going to be spend most of the next few um, most of the next few months going through Corinthians. Some some blips along the way, some interruptions, but they're really awesome interruptions. Next week, we're going to have an in-person extended update from the OPIO family, our missionaries that we support in Kenya. It's going to be super awesome, super encouraging. Make sure to come out for that. But I did want to dive back into 1 Corinthians and uh, sort of rebuild some of the momentum uh, because we haven't really been in this book since um, November, I think. This is a series where we're going through a book of the Bible. This is often how I teach, as I teach through books of the Bible so that we're learning how to understand some of the main passages when we come to them within a larger context and to prevent the temptation to only pop into the passages that are um, most attractive to us that kind of reinforce how we maybe want to think or um, that are just familiar and we just kind of get in a rut. And pastors can do that too. Pastors can get in a rut where you're just sort of like, I've got like these life verses and favorite stories and favorite books. So we try and, and I try and push myself into extended studies of books and through passages that To be honest, I I probably wouldn't choose if it was up to me. But that's actually a really good thing, because what that, I hope, reinforces is that all of the Scripture is the Word of God. All of the Scripture is the counsel and advice and instruction of God. And we all need to be careful of uh, favoring uh, some parts of Scripture to the point where we just sort of ignore or never bother to go into other places that seem a little not as relevant or maybe even boring, or um, maybe even overly offensive or challenging. So we are in chapter 7, and Paul has been writing this letter to help Christians who have been in this church now for about five years, but the wheels are falling off. There's a lot of chaos, there's a lot of inner turmoil. And one of the questions, one of what's called a hermeneutical key key to being able to properly interpret what's happening throughout the book, why Paul writes the letter, this question never actually comes up in the book, but it's sort of underneath all of the issues that are coming up for the Corinthians. And Gordon Fee is the New Testament scholar who sort of named this, and since he did, it's really helped people for the past number of decades to, I think, read the book, uh, first letter to the Corinthians in a way that's much more accurate and much more helpful. And that is the question, what does it mean to be spiritual? What does it it mean, what does it look like to be spiritual? If you've grown up in the church, every church, whether it's stated or not, there's sort of this at least low-resolution picture that gets communicated over time of what a true or real um, or authentically very spiritual Christian looks like. And if we're not careful, that picture can be much more informed from the culture around us, maybe even the culture within the church. Maybe it's built on some good, um, with some good intentions, but it actually doesn't line up with how, Scripture defines what it means to be spiritual. And part of what you're seeing all throughout chapter 7 is even though there's particular um, issues that come up, sexuality and marriage, um, different relationship, people in different relationship statuses, and then eventually people in different socioeconomic statuses, what's driving all those questions that Paul has to respond to is what does it mean to be spiritual? In some churches, to be spiritual is to, no matter where you are and if you're talking, if you're always mentioning God or dropping Bible verses, that seems a very spiritual. In other church contexts, it's if you are able to um, live into and want to chase after intense spiritual experiences. And if you have those, oh, that's, that's evidence of being very, very spiritual. In others, it's just knowing a lot of the Bible. If you know a lot of the Bible and you can just like rhyme off information, wow really spiritual. Well, the Corinthians had a template for what it meant to be spiritual. And at its heart, it was very dualistic, meaning it had a very clear line between spiritual things and unspiritual things. And so what the Corinthians were doing is they were taking that mindset, sort of like the operating system, the default programming, and then taking what they were learning about Christianity and saying, oh, So this is the spiritual stuff, and this is the not spiritual stuff. And what we're seeing in this chapter is the Holy Spirit, through Paul, confronting their assumptions about what it means to be a spiritual Christian, or maybe other uh, traditions might use language like to be really on fire for God, or to be fully devoted. What does that look like? So in verses 1 to 7, he's talked about the foundation of sexuality and marriage, which is about mutuality and shared sexual pleasure, The husband's body doesn't belong to him alone, but to the wife and vice versa. Then he begins to talk through three different places that people could be in a relationship. He'll actually mention a fourth, but we're only going to look at three today. In verses 8 and 9, he talks to those who were married, but now find themselves singled and widowed. In verse 10 and 11, he speaks to those Christians who are married to another Christian, so a believer's marriage. And then in 12 to 16, he speaks to those who are in a spiritually mixed marriage, where one person has become a Christian, but their spouse has not. And each of these people, each of these categories of Christians, whether they're widowed or married to a Christian or married to an unbeliever, all of them had assumptions of what it meant to honor God as a result of becoming a Christian in their circumstance, and Paul has to correct them. One thing to understand about marriage in a Roman context: that it was a huge source of social distinction and aid in advancement. It was a very patriarchal, male-centered point of view, where marriage reflected and allowed you to access public honor, which was a huge cultural value. So, marriage was. You know, no one really grew up thinking like, oh, I'm not going to be married. Maybe that's a choice I won't make. Because it was part of the way within Roman culture and Corinthian culture that you secured honor and set yourself up set yourself up for um, upward mobility. Because your marriage and your family signaled to the world that you were like a solid person. You were genuinely... Um, You were a citizen doing the right thing. Getting married, having children, that helps expand the Roman Empire. But also, there was this template of, this is what it means, especially for men, to be a real man, to be a contributing man, to be the head of a household, and to have this expanding progeny that allows you to say, look at me. It was a huge social flex. So this, you can imagine, leads to this very deep culture. I mean, I know if you've grown up in the church, some people are like, I feel like when I was growing up in the church or in youth group, sometimes it was said explicitly, sometimes it wasn't. But it feels like what got reinforced was, well, someday you're going to get married and have kids. Like it was an inevitability. And in some contexts, it was even like, that's your God-given destiny. And maybe that message is sent a little bit more to women in some religious contexts. But nothing would have compared to the pressure is not even sort of like the right word. It's like, if you don't get married, your prospects are over. And again, these are arranged marriages. These are not marriages based off of mutual affection or love in the way that we would uh, come at them today. But this put a huge presumption that for any reason, if you are not married, you are to get married. And in fact, there were certain um, periods in Roman um, in the Roman Empire, especially after wars where if you were a female and your spouse died in battle, you had to remarry within two years. you could be imprisoned. So and again this was about Rome reinforcing like this is the way we build our economy, or build our military, this is a means to an end. And so as we move into these instructions, it's really helpful to hold that picture with the instructions that God gives his people through Paul. So let's look at verses 8 and 9. Now to the unmarried and widows, and the unmarried does not mean people who have never been married. The Greek word is agamos, and almost every scholar, biblical and otherwise, and ancient, says that probably means widower. It's the closest thing to a man who has lost his spouse. So this is to widowers and widows, people who were married. Now they find themselves unmarried, not by choice. Paul says, it's good for them to stay unmarried as I do. So right out of the gate, Paul just goes completely against the grain where Rome would have said for both men and women, yeah, you might have a season where you're unmarried, like literally a season of the year, and then you get married and continue on. Paul says, ah, it's actually good. Stay as I am. I'm single. He's going to talk later on about being able to devote himself fully to God and he just get entangled in some of the complexities and challenges that come with married life. He says it's good for them to stay unmarried. He doesn't say it's God's will. He just says it's good. And again, God, spirit through Paul, uh, really practical. If you can't control yourself, though, then you should marry because it's better to marry than to burn with passion. He says, you know what, a lot of you are visiting prostitutes, you are not getting married, and you're fulfilling uh, sexual urges in ways that are fall under porneia, sexual immorality. You need to stop doing that, and you either need to be abstinent, if you feel like you can't handle that, then you need to get married. He's going to encourage those who are formally married to remain in their present state. He's going to do that again in verses 39 and 40. We'll look at that in a few weeks. But he also says, and this is important, he says, I think this represents what's good. He doesn't say it's a commandment. He just says, this is a good choice to remain unmarried. Then he turns to Christians who are married to each other, a believer with a believer. And he says, to the Christian married, it just says married, and you're versions, but because he's talking later to Christians married to a non-Christian, this is the instructions to Christians who have come to faith in this pagan culture, and now are saying, what does it look like to be a Christian who's married? He says, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. He just said it's good if widowers and widows stay unmarried. We didn't say that was a command from God, but he says this is a command here. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. So this is really important to get clear about what's being said, what's not being said. Paul wants to make sure Christians understand the default position when they're married to another Christian is you don't seek out separation, you don't seek out divorce. Now, why would this be happening? Why does he have to say to people who are widowed, it's actually good if you remain unmarried? Because, again, there are scripts at play in the Roman context that if you're a widow or a widower, your highest priority is to get remarried. And Paul says, no, you don't need to. It would actually be good if you could stay single and devote yourself in a unique way to God's purposes. But, again he had to wrestle with people now saying, well, I'm a widower. What does it look like to be spiritual? How do I, maybe I, maybe I should, maybe I have to get married because that's a script I've heard my whole life. Marriage is like the key to unlocking your life. So it must be the same with following Jesus. Right. And he says, no, like you might even be better to not remarry. And here, why would you have to instruct Christians to not just immediately be like, Oh, We've both become Christians. We've already been married for 5, 10, 15 years. Um, maybe we should like, separate and divorce. What would cause, can you think of what would cause two Christians to reflexively think, well, maybe we should just separate and divorce? And maybe you can get there even if there was no tension in the relationship, like it was a genuinely functional good marriage. Yeah, totally. It's kind of like I've come to faith, but married life and life with kids is like—it's a lot. <laughs> it takes up a lot of my time. I don't have a lot of margins. Maybe the spiritual thing to do is to relieve myself from this burden. It's good burden, but then I could free myself up to do the higher, thing, more spirit. I could devote my full life to God. Um. Maybe there's also a bit of a dualistic idea here that, well, now that I'm a Christian, I need to distance myself from things that are worldly and sinful. And maybe there's a conflation between sinfulness and sexuality. So it's kind of like, ooh, that kind of pollutes the water, so to speak. So I want to be pure before God. And so we need to separate because to be really spiritual as a Christian, like really sold out to Jesus, means complete devotion body, mind, and soul. And body, that would mean purity understood as no one touches me. Look at the first verse of chapter 7, if you have your Bible open. That was one of the questions that's given to Paul. He says, I'm writing in response to your thing. Oh, it's good not to touch a woman. He's like, no, there's nothing godly, life-giving, sexual mutuality and pleasure within the context of a relationship doesn't pollute you spiritually actually enhances the bond between a husband and wife. So there might be that kind of thing going on. Paul says, no, you shouldn't just seek divorce for what he thinks and they think of as ascetic re- reasons, meaning that somehow marriage is kind of like this thing that kind of pulls me down into the weeds of like lower life. I mean, it's real life, but it's like, oh, it's messy and too material, and, and God wants me to be about the higher things. So that means I need to disconnect from the normal mundane stuff, doing doing the groceries and driving the kids to soccer and, and, um, you know, connecting and making sure that we're taking days off and, and taking care of the house and the lawn. Like, oh, like all that wasted time. And imagine if you could just drop that dead weight and instead say, God, my life is for you. That's what some of the Corinthians thought. They were like, well, we're married. We're Christians. Wouldn't it be better to break up and then we can serve the Lord 100%? No. Now, again, what's important here is to understand this larger context because you can see how some of you come along, open up their Bible and say, hey, wife might, must not separate from her husband. Husband must not divorce his wife. Well, there's a proof text for like no divorce. Case closed, boom. And they are like, "Well, well, If you think through things carefully and logically, Paul doesn't even reference the things that Jesus said was a qualification for a legitimate divorce, which was adultery. He says that in Matthew 5, Matthew 19. Paul doesn't say that because that wasn't the issue there. The issue wasn't what happens if my spouse commits adultery. It was, well, we're Christian. Now that we're Christian, should we just get unmarried? And he's like, no, absolutely not. You don't seek out a divorce. That's not God's will for two pagans who were married, now they become Christians, and now they're married Christians. You don't kind of reset your marriage. And because Paul doesn't even mention this allowance for Jesus, and it's only two verses, it's really clear he's not trying to create a grand, a systematic um, teaching on divorce. He's really speaking to a specific issue. Again, what does it mean to be spiritual? If I'm a Christian and I'm married to another Christian, is the higher, more God-glorifying thing to do separate so that we can go our own ways and serve God apart? No. Wife, don't leave your husband. Christian husband, don't leave your wife. The Bible gives two explicitly clear grounds for divorce. The first is sexual immorality, adultery, unfaithfulness in marriage. Jesus says that. And then uh, Paul in the next few verses, is going to say abandonment by an unbelieving spouse. So they don't want to live with you, they leave. Paul's going to say you're you're no longer bound. Now, are there grounds for divorce beyond those explicit um, allowances? And this is where there's some debate within Christian circles, um, because when you start thinking through things like is it right or at least permissible for Christians to divorce because of spousal abuse, physical abuse, emotional abuse, uh, child abuse, abuse, addiction to pornography, drug or, repeated drug and alcohol use, crime or imprisonment, mismanagement of finances, right? gambling, gambling addiction. None of these can be claimed and say, oh, it says right there in the Bible, this allows me in good conscience to divorce. But many, many Christian scholars and pastors who have had to deal with the impacts of these kind of attitudes and behavior um, will prioritize the safety and well-being of spouses and family members above kind of keeping a marriage together. And And that's where I would land too. I would see Jesus and Paul setting a very, very high bar in their cultural context, that divorce is not something that we should seek. But Jesus also said to the religious leaders God permitted divorce to Moses because he knew the hardness of your hearts. And you live long enough, you realize it's very difficult to make the case that someone staying in a relationship with someone who is unrepentantly, meaning they're not actually changing their ways, they're not growing, we're not talking about someone who makes a mistake and game over. We're talking about repeated, unrepentant, what one commentator called heinous sin. That it glorifies God in no way to continue to absorb that um, kind of abuse or to have your children absorb it. So even early on, this was an issue for Protestant reformers because alcoholism was really rampant and you had um, George Whitfield and other pastors who were like, well, by the letter of the law, they have a very high view of scripture. By the letter of the law, you know, we, you know, a husband routinely getting drunk and beating his wife is not technically grounds for divorce, but he basically wrote in one of his um, pastoral letters to other pastors, he said, but you know, surely from a pastoral perspective, you see the need to protect woman and children in this situation. And if this man does not respond to church discipline, basically like one more strike and this is over, and we're going to rally around your family, and you're going to be excommunicated and we're going to protect them, he says that's the right posture. So there's very few Christians today I would say that really stick to this by the letter of the law, because they look for larger patterns of what Paul and Jesus were doing. And Jesus was trying to emphasize to religious leaders, mostly men and male Jews, who at that time had Basically, un, uh, unlimited power to divorce your spouse. You could even legitimately divorce your spouse if they burned your dinner. You, there was a there was a saying, and Ro- Rome did this too. I mean, Rome you could kill your uh, feet, you could kill your wife if you wanted to. because She was your property, but you could also send her away by saying, "Take up your things and go." I forget the Latin, but it was "Take up your things and go." That's all you needed to divorce your your spouse, your your wife. And this had seeped in the Jewish culture, and Jesus has to come along and say, "Here's the grounds, men, around which you can divorce your spouse if she's unfaithful." Well Jesus, what about this?? Nope. So again, this is where we want to be careful, where we are taking the letter of the law and making sure we're marrying it with the spirit of the law. that marriage is sacred, divorce is never something to be done lightly. It should always be a last resort. But I would say there are, unfortunately, I've seen and experienced many expressions of what I would call covenant-breaking betrayal that makes the um, continuation of a marriage where one party is not participating in anything resembling reconciliation, repentance. um, It just doesn't make it possible. And I I, I would never... um, Personally, and as a covenant church, we don't advocate in terms of only divorce in these two allowances. We want the overall well-being and protection of spouses and children to take a priority over um, just simply keeping a marriage together in a legalistic way. I think that's the right approach. Some of you might disagree with me, but I think that's important to say. So the bottom line is divorce should only occur in instances of repeated and unrepentant, really heinous abuse and sin. Verses 12 to 16. Now he speaks to those in spiritually mixed marriages. To the rest I say this, and he says, I am not the Lord. And what he means is there's no explicit command about this. Everything Jesus teaches on marriage presumes two God-fearing Jewish people are married. This is a new situation where I'm a Christian. I was a pagan last week. Now I've been baptized. I'm a Christian, but I got a pagan husband. or I got a pagan wife. Our whole household is pagan. What does it mean to be spiritual? What does it mean to really honor God? Well, again, you could imagine someone saying, I need to leave this pagan marriage and pagan environment because it corrupts me. Right? It, it, it's, it's polluting. Maybe I love these people. Maybe even they love me, but spiritually... I need to keep myself from them. And that seems to be the impulse here. And he says, if any brother has a wife who's not a believer, but she's willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. Because the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife. And the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. This is important, and it has an Old Testament context to kind of wrap your head around how challenging this would have been in order to heal. Anybody with a skin disease, anybody with a um, contagious disease in the Old Testament, what were they commanded to do? Leprosy. What did you have to do if you were were leprous? You had to go away. You had to go far away. You couldn't even come near anything approximating public shared spaces. You had to warn people, say, I'm unclean. If you had to come close to maybe a well to get a drinking water. Why? Because the paradigm was, I'm an infected person. I'm unclean before God. This doesn't necessarily mean sinful, but I'm not in right standing before God. And if I touch someone else, they become unclean. And so they have to go through this whole process of ritual cleansing to, in order to engage in worship properly. When Jesus comes on the scene and people who are leprous or disease-ridden or dead are brought before him, what does he do? He touches them. That's technically not what you're supposed to do. You don't touch dead people. You don't touch diseased people because they will infect you. But when Jesus touches people, what happens? He heals them. The corrupting power gets inverted. And it's actually a infection isn't the right word, right? But it's uh the infection of heaven to earth. And what Paul is saying to Christians who are like, well, I'm kinda of worried about my spiritual state because I'm the only Christian in my family, and my family is like pagan. <laughs> like they're literally going to worship other gods, or like it's it's not good so don't I need to spiritually protect myself? You can see how that would make sense. Do you you see how powerful it is that Paul says, oh, no, the influence goes the other way. You have been placed in that family to be a leavening, a blessing, a healing influence to your pagan spouse, to your children. And he says, actually, you know, if it worked the other way, then now yeah, your children would be unclean, but as they are, they're holy. And that doesn't mean your kids are saved. It doesn't mean your spouse is saved. But what it does mean is, and maybe some of you will be uncomfortable if you are the non-believing spouse in your family. If you have one married person in your family, if you have one, if one parent is Christian, that's a Christian family. That's what Paul is saying. It doesn't mean the expectations or other people are going to let but the spiritual influence that your children aren't like spiritually mixed they are in some way we don't get into the mechanisms but they are sanctified they're set apart they're special they're distinct your influence on them spiritually is stronger than the other way so it's not more spiritual to again let go of this pagan dead weight i want to be free from that i don't know nope you do not seek a divorce if your pagan spouse is willing to continue in the marriage, you show up and be a blessing. Now he says, but so we're talking about ideal versus reality. If the unbelieving spouse leaves, if they're like your Jesusness, I can't stand it. This is freaky. I'm really committed to this pagan thing. I don't want to share space with you. I don't want our kids to be under, under this kind of influence. He says, let it be so Then a brother or sister is not bound in such circumstances. And here's the principle. God wants us to live in peace. It's an overriding principle in our marriages and families. It's a priority. And again, that needs to be amplified and extrapolated for all of us. What does it look like for us to be people of peace, not peacekeeping, but peacemaking in our relationships? Especially in situations that are mixed, where we're not on the same page with a spouse or with our kids. And then he says, how do you know, wife, whether or not you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? That does not mean that as a Christian in the family in the marriage, you're always finding ways to like leave a Bible track somewhere. Your husband goes to open up the cereal box. Is that a New Testament in there? That's crazy. Oh, weird. Right? You're not forcing the conversation. But what it means, and Peter talks about this, is that you serve your spouse and your children. You love and lead them in a way that reflects Jesus. You trust that God's going to use that to evangelize your family. Not because you're trying to push faith on your kids or force faith into your spouse, but you are staying strong and saying, this is my passion, this is what I'm committed to, and you let your actions and your service be the tool that draws them, that that, um, breaks down some of their resistance, the hardness of their heart, uh, breaks down the prejudices that they hold against Christianity or faith or Jesus, God, the Bible. And again, here's the principle, God has placed you there. How do you know whether or not three years from now, your whole family will actually turn their lives over to Jesus because you've shown up as a father that prioritizes instead of I'm a charge here, I'm a head of the household, everyone does as I say, you've led like Jesus and you've been washing feet and serving your kids and loving them and leading them well and loving and building a relationship with your spouse that they look at all their other Roman marriages around them and say, oh my gosh, like my husband, I mean, the Jesus thing is is a little weird, but he's never treated me better. Like, amazing. He doesn't beat me anymore. He asks for my opinion on stuff. He comes under my influence at times. He actually wants me to give input. Amazing. So divorce can be justified if a non-believing partner um, leaves and says, I don't want this. But again, you see the big idea here through all of these situations is remain as you are. I've just become a Christian. I'm on fire for God. Like, oh, I want to live for God. I want to do it all. Like, please, I just want to give my life to God. Awesome. Okay, so do I have to get married? Do I have to become single? Do I have to go over here? What's a what's big, big change? And Paul always says your starting point is just remain where you are. Just stay where you are. Because where you are right now is where God has placed you. Remain where you are, remain as you are, redeem where you are. God wants to use you, right? You know, the aformism, um, bloom where you're planted. You know, that that could apply here, right? You've been planted here. And it doesn't necessarily honor God for you to say, well, I'm just going to like change my external context so that I can more fully and faithfully serve you, God. God's like, no, that's not the plan, <laughs> you're going to faithfully serve me and grow into walking with me in this context. But probably everybody in these contexts thought, yeah, but God, it's kind of less than ideal. Like I'm married to capital P Pagan. Wouldn't it be better if I could get divorced and marry like a Christian? God, I'm single. There's not a lot of opportunities for single in my Roman world. Wouldn't it be better if I just focused just for a season on just getting married no matter what to another Christian? Then I can really serve you. Or God, I'm married to another Christian, and it's it's kind of good, but our lives are just so bloated with different responsibilities and commitments. Can't? Wouldn't it be better to just, just sort of cut ties and say, we're all going our different ways, and I don't know, like I have big dreams about serving God and changing diapers and putting a meal list together and cleaning the house. That doesn't feel very serving God with all my heart. It doesn't feel very spiritual. See, we often are tempted, and I deal with this all the time as a pastor, when there's a real regenerative work in our hearts as Christians, we often want it to express itself by a huge part of the outside of our life to be radically, radically changed. We don't want to be associated with the old life anymore. And maybe we're scared because, well, part of the old life is there's a non-Christian influence there, and I don't want to distance myself from that. In some cases, that's wise, but in lots of cases, We're doing that because what we think it means to be spiritual or truly truly devoted to God is to be in a kind of spiritual bubble where the contaminating influences of anything that isn't like purely Christian were protected from. And what Paul is saying through these instructions, what the Holy Spirit says, what you see in the life of Jesus in all the New Testament writings, once you sort of have the lens to see it, is to say... No, 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 that that's not how the Christian life works. It's not. I have Jesus now. I go into a spiritual um, bunker, right? You you have all these super. Maybe you've heard the news, like all these like super rich billionaires who are building underground bunkers right now to survive whatever climate catastrophe, catastrophe or apocalypse. And we laugh at that. We're like, oh, oh, oh silly billionaires. But we kind of do that as Christians. We're kind of like become a Christian. Now I'm just gonna like hold up, protect my space. No. Bad, evil, corrupting influence. And Paul's like, no, no, no. You don't retreat from the world. You remain where you are and then be a leavening influence, be a blessing. Right? Remember, Jesus said, you're a light of the world. It's not really that good if you put the light under a bushel. Oh, but the light's protected then. Nothing you can get at the light. But the point of a light is to be illuminated, to bring warmth. That has to be near people for that to happen. So these impulses that we can have, now that I'm on fire for Christ, I need to find a spouse and get married and have kids because being single, I'm kind of like a second-class, inferior Christian. Paul says, no. Now that I'm on fire for Christ, I need to switch jobs because I'm just doing like menial stuff. Like, I don't know how many times I've tell you as a pastor, someone that comes to faith, have a regenerating experience in faith, and one of the first things they say to me is, I think God's calling you to be a pastor. Maybe. But remain as you are, remain where you are for a long time first right? But I get it, because you're like, well, I'm just doing that. I just have a small business, and it doesn't really, I don't know. I'm I'm just an accountant. I'm just a delivery driver. I want to do something more meaningful, something more spiritual. Paul says, no, you learn to walk with God and be spiritual in that role. Now that I'm on fire for Christ, like, I don't want to, I wouldn't say it to them, but I do kind of feel like my non-Christian spouse is going to hold me back in a lot of ways. And being married to a pagan, is really going to set me on a path to be an inferior second-class Christian. Paul says, no, not at all. This is an amazing opportunity. You should be totally pumped about this. You have all kinds of ways to be spiritual and a blessing to your pagan spouse. Well, now that I'm on fire for Jesus, all these family responsibilities, the mundanity of life, um, all these commitments, they feel like they're suffocating awesome opportunities to like really go out in the mission field and do all these big things for God. Being married with children, Yes, it's a, a spouse is Christian. It's great on paper, but it kinda, I kind of feel like an inferior Christian because I feel trapped. I feel like this is holding me back. And God through Paul says, no, it's not holding you back at all. This is, this is where you need to be. Don't seek escape from this. To these impulses that the Corinthians feel, Paul says, no, remain where you are. Remain um, as you are and no, but God's going to redeem where you are. There's a, there's a plan and a purpose, right? And I think a larger principle, if you want to even pull this beyond relationship status, is it can be tempting for us. And I can speak to different things in my life where I honestly thought when Jesus says, I've come that they might have life and have it to the full or have it more abundantly. I honestly fell for the lie that that abundant life in Christ was waiting on the other side of some external change God I believe that but if if I could just get this job then I then I'd be able to access but if I could if you could just fix my spouse that would be the thing then oof, I'd, I'd be rolling if you could just take this away, if you could just add this if you could just um, change my relationship status from single to married then it would unlock it's like no the kingdom of God is within you. God's power and peace is present where you are. If Paul told the Corinthians that who are married, that marriage was not a non-negotiable, right? If Paul told the Corinthians in spiritually mixed marriages that there was nothing inherently limiting or threatening about their position and that they should be a blessing to their unbelieving spouse, Right? If he's going to tell, eventually, Christians, regardless of their social or economic status, not to actually let it bother them, he's going to say that in a few weeks. Were you a slave? Were you a servant when you were called? Don't let it bother you. If you can gain your freedom, awesome. But that's crazy. How would you, how would you think like that? Well, the way that you can think like that is if you understand that if you have Jesus as the center of your life, then that can be enough. I can know Christ and He can give me contentment. That's part of Philippians 4. That I, um, in all things, can have joy and peace because it's not based on my circumstances. The temptation is to think there are a set of circumstances that if God gave those to me, they would be the ideal conditions through which I could be a stronger, real, more spiritual Christian. And that is a fundamental misunderstanding about the power of God and the purposes of God. Because God doesn't give any Christian ideal circumstances. Ever. I'll prove it. Put your hand up right now if you have the absolute ideal circumstances for you to live out a spiritual walk with God. Right? Right? God doesn't give anyone ideal circumstances. He places people in contexts and says, now learn to serve me and honor me and be a blessing where you are. It doesn't mean that change doesn't happen in the future. But Paul wants the Corinthians to know that following Jesus faithfully does not mean abandoning the place where God has placed you now. It's to go into that place with a very different heart and mindset. We know that even if circumstances were to change, even if we think, oh, if I was just married, then I'd really be able to serve God. It'd be amazing. Well, talk to some married people here, and you will be relieved from that illusion very quickly, right? But we have these ideas that it's like, oh, if I just had this, if I just had more money, then I'd be, I wouldn't worry so much and I'd have more energy to talk to people in this church or that you know who have lots of money. Let them tell you how free they feel. If I was just better looking, if I was just more educated, everything is just an exchange of costs. And if you chase forever the ideal circumstances through which to grow as a Christian, it'll just never happen. Because God will never deliver those into your life, this side of heaven. Instead, we pursue Christ at the center. We learn what that means. How do I live where I am? Single, divorced, newly married, young, old, athlete, accountant. Um, How do I love and serve Jesus where I'm at? And I'm not going to chase the spiritual grass on the other side of the fence, believing, oh, if I just had different economic conditions or relational conditions or different friends or different spouse or um, fill in the blank, then then it would come together. If you devote yourself to learning to walk with Christ in your circumstances, that will be a thousand times more transformative than trying to change your circumstances so that your walk with Christ becomes easy. Paul is trying to help the Corinthians and God through Paul is trying to help us remind ourselves of that. That's what it means to be spiritual. It's not found in the externalities of our lives so much as that how do I walk with God in the midst of an imperfect marriage, challenging relationship with my kids, financial stress, um, a job that is difficult for me to connect to on a level of maybe purpose and mission illness, uh, aging, whatever the challenges or multiplicity of them. To be spiritual is to say, what does it look like for me today to love and honor God? What does it look like for me today to be a blessing to those around me, to experience his power and peace? So to myself and to you, let this be a call to remain where you are, remain what you are and allow god to redeem that space god has a purpose and a place for you in this season let's pray god as we close off with this final song um, i pray that this message is both an encouragement and a challenge a challenge to those of us who are just waiting for something fundamentally different to change about our life that we think will just be a magic bullet the good life that you have promised us. And after the good life is found in learning to walk with you when life is less than good or even just really chaotic and, and messy. And, and it's a lot of hardship. Teach us to be faithful to you, God. Teach us to have a mature understanding of what it means to be spiritual, which is devoted to you um, regardless of the circumstances of our lives.